I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, so good morning, and we're continuing with our series on Sneut, or in English, it translates as modesty. Um, but before we get to that subject, I just want to start, as we've been doing, with uh, a little bit about the topic of Shalashon, the topic of guarding our tongue as we go into the summer and into the time of Tisha B'Av, which hopefully will be the last Tisha B'Av that we have to go through, or hopefully not at all. But we know that the temple was destroyed because of Sinas Chinam, because of causeless hatred. And one of the things that people are doing during this time of year is working to be more careful with speech, which of course is always a manifestation of how we feel and think about people. Um, and so we have to be more careful with what we say. So interestingly, this week's Parsha is sort of the third Parsha in a row that shows us what happens when people's thoughts are distorted and therefore their speech becomes a uh, expression of those distorted thoughts. The last three Parshas actually are correspond to a uh, saying that we have in Pirkei Avot in the Mishnah that says there are three things that remove a person from this world. And those are uh, jealousy, honor-seeking, and desires. Okay, these are three character traits, which basically don't allow a person to live in this world with any kind of true simcha, true menucha sanefesh. And these are actualized in the last three parshas. The, 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 going back two parshas, Beha'alosicha, we have the parsha of the, what we would call in English, the complainers. Okay, these were the people that were challenging Moshe Rabbeinu and basically were giving into their taiva, their desire. They were complaining about the food. They wanted meat. They wanted to eat some good stuff. They were sick of the man, um, the manna that came down from heaven. And they're complaining and they're disputes and their uprisings against Moshe were all based on what we call taiva, desires physical desires which overwhelmed them okay last week's partial we talked about the incident of the spies the meruglim and we spoke about how what made these great leaders of the jewish people speak lush and hara about the land of israel now of course they said the land is a good land but their lush and hara was more about that's not a land that we can live in it's not a land that we can go up to uh, there are giants there, we're going to die there, it's not going to be good for us. And what we said last week was that the way they saw the land and their report was very much skewed by their own bias. You know, they hadn't weeded out, as we said about Sniya, uh, part of Sniyut is being able to weed out distortions, weed out your own bias. And they were concerned that once they got into the land, that they would somehow lose their positions of importance. And so the Torah teaches us that what motivated them to give up on going into the land was their desire for honor, 
So there we have the second one, right? We said that taiva, kavod, and today in this week's parsha we have an expression of this third one, which is kina, jealousy, and that comes to us in the personality of Korach. Now, for those of you who don't know who Korach was, Korach was the bad guy or one of the bad guys in the Torah. He was Jewish. He was a great human being. He knew a lot of Torah. But he uh, accuses Moshe of nepotism, of taking over the leadership wrongly. And he decides that he should really be the leader of the Jewish people. And from Korach, we learn how jealousy leads, of course, to Lashon Hara, naturally, and it leads to dispute. And disputes or machloket are never a good thing in Judaism, unless, of course, they are for the sake of heaven. So we have a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot that tells us the difference between a dispute that's lolashem shamayim, that's not for the sake of heaven, and a dispute that is for the sake of heaven. Um, and it says, every argument for the sake of heaven will in the end be of permanent value. But every argument not for the sake of heaven will not endure. Which is an argument for the sake of heaven? The argument between Hillel and Shammai. Which is an argument not for the sake of heaven? The argument of Korach and his company. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't say the argument between Korach and Moshe, right? But rather, even the people on Korach's team who were against Moshe, they also didn't really get along with Korach. They were only united in the fact that they all wanted these positions of power, and they were all united in just having a machlokas, a dispute. But between themselves, there was no unity. Because we know about Shimon, uh, about Hillel and Shammai, that even if they disagreed with one another, their, their arguments were for the sake of heaven. We're even told that the children of Hillel and the children of Shammai would marry each other. Because again, the dispute was for a good cause. Now, in Korach's sake, in Korach's case, he looked at um, Moshe as being the leader of the Jewish people as a status symbol. In other words, you know, you have that status and I want that status. I'm jealous of your status. I should be the leader. And what he was confused about is that in Judaism, being a leader, being a spiritual leader is not meant to be a status symbol, but rather what it represents what, what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs Zatzal says is service. In other words, you're serving the community, right? Your whole life is a life of service. But Korach saw this as status, and he wanted that kind of status, and that's what led to Machlokas. So what do we learn from this, ladies, practically? You know, sometimes people are in positions of leadership, even ourselves. Sometimes we could volunteer for an organization or be part of an organization. And we always have to check our kavanas. We always have to check our intentions. You know, what are we trying? Why are we doing this? Are we doing this to be of service? Are we doing this because we expect a certain honor from it, a certain status from it? Do we want other people to tell us how great we are? You know, are we jealous of other people that we work with or we cause disputes with the people that we work with? So, you know, 
part of being part of a Mustervad is that we want to look deep, more deeply inside and check our intentions. Another thing that we learned from this episode of um, Korach is something that I mentioned briefly, but basically the tribe of Ruvain was the tribe that joined Korach in his fight against Moshe. And the reason that they joined him was basically because of their proximity. Their tribe was situated right next to where Korach was in terms of geography. And there's also another saying in the Mishnah that basically says, oi to the wicked and oi, oi to the wicked and oi to his neighbor. Okay. And what it's saying there is that we have to be careful who we surround ourselves with, who we choose as our friends and as our social group, because they very much affect our behaviors, right? As much as we said that Sneas is about doing things for a higher purpose, covering our ego, doing things for Hashem, it doesn't help us if we're surrounded by people who speak Lashon Hara, if we're surrounded by people who have very... Uh, small ideas about their own greatness and the greatness of others. And, you know, of course, we can't, you know, hide from all kinds of people in our lives that Hashem puts in our lives, but we can choose our friends and we can choose the people that we want to surround ourselves with. So that's very important here too. Okay, so we're going to get back into our topic of Sneha. I wanted to mention one idea before we do, because we also touched on this last week, which was the idea that, you know, when we're talking about women specifically, which is the first thing people think about when, when they, you know, think about modesty in Judaism, even though we said that Sniut is one third of the Torah, right? According to Micha, God wants three things from you. He wants you to do justice, do acts of kindness, and walk humbly to walk humbly with your God. So as Dina Schoonmaker says, if, you know, Sniut is one third of the Torah, then it's certainly about much more than dress. But of course, dress and women's dress specifically, and as women, you know, we, we have to know about that, um, is also very important as a manifestation of Sniut. But what we said last week is that, you know, you can dress according to the letter of the law and still not be in the spirit of what Sneot is supposed to be doing for you. It's not about others as much as what is it supposed to be doing for you, for your sense of self, for your sense of dignity, for your protecting your internality, the internal part of you. Because women are so much more likely to be externalized, right, in the media, in advertising, because we are so much more used as objects, right, because of our beauty, that is why the Torah gives an extra measure of sneut to women so that we can protect our true selves, our internality, which can be overlooked because of our externality. That's why women have an extra measure. But listen to this, there's a Gemara in Yuma that talks about a woman who had seven sons and each of her sons was became a Kohen Gadol, okay? An incredibly high service 
status of somebody who will serve in the temple as the Kohen Gadol. Now, the interesting thing is, and, and this is a, a Gemara that a lot of women learn in Beis Yaakov, and, you know, if you've had a religious education, the question that the rabbis asked this woman is, what merit did you have that you merited to have seven sons who all became Kohanim Gadolim? You know, it's like in today's verb verbiage, it would be like seven sons who became doctors, you know, seven sons who became lawyers. I don't know, whatever it is, right, in the secular world. This is what it was. He's not only a doctor, he's a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, all rolled into one, okay? He's like, you know... Um, so anyway, so they asked these, this woman, you know, what did you do? And this is the answer that she gave. She said, the reason I had sons like this is because the beams of my house never saw my hair uncovered. Okay, now, I mean, I remember learning this, you know, talk about pressure, right? <laughs> talk about pressure, right? So, you know, one strand of hair showing outside your tickle, your shade till that's it. You blew it. Okay. That's it. You're done. Okay. Forget about outside, but inside, right? Inside your house, you're finished. You're out of the competition. But what my husband said, and what's interesting, and I'm going to say this in the name of Rabbi Ruvain Silver Zatzal, who was our Rav and our Masada Kedushin at our um, wedding. My husband learned from him for years and years. He says, um, the rabbis respond to this woman when she says the beings of my house never saw a hair on my head. They say, but wait a second, there's a lot of women who were scrupulous in covering their hair the same way as you, right? That not one hair was ever shown, even to the beams of their house. So what is it about you that merited seven sons, Kohanim Gadoli? And what Rabbi Silver says is that a lot of times they don't tell us, teach us that second part, which is a lot of women did this, but why did you merit this? And the answer that Rabbi Silver said, which is something we've already touched upon, is that Sneha is not just about following the rules. It's not about, okay, my skirt's a certain length, check. My sleeves are a certain length. My, my, uh, this is a certain, you know, my shaitel isn't too long and attracting, you know, um, whatever it is. It's not a checklist. It's about using the external to inform the internal. Because you understand in everything that our external affects our internal. And if modesty is all about developing internality, right? Which means covering the ego, which is very much externally motivated. What will people think of me? What do I look like? How do they envision me? What, you know, who am I trying to impress? But we're trying to develop that internality where it's, you know, it doesn't matter what other people think. What I want more than anything else is devakis to Hashem, closeness to Hashem. And so I want to develop that internality. And and my dress will, okay, so the point again is, it's not just about the rules, it's about the spirit, the spirit of the law, always about the spirit. You know, there's an idea that the Rambam, bring, I think it's the Ramban in the laws of Kashrut brings down, that you can be a glutton with permission of the Torah. 
In other words, you can say, I only eat kosher. I eat the best heksher, only glut kosher, but you can still be a glutton, meaning you've missed the spirit of the law. The laws of kashrut are there to inform a certain uh, ability to restrain oneself, right? Saying a bracha before you eat, another restraint before we actually put the food in our mouth. Think about it. What are you eating? Do you need this? Should you be eating that ice cream sandwich at 10 at night? You know, don't tell anybody, you know. Um, you know, though, for somebody who's living consciously and with awareness, all of these things are meant to inform us. So the Ramban says, you could be a glutton with permission of the Torah, right? The Torah doesn't say anywhere, thou shalt eat only 2,500 calories a day. You know, it doesn't say that. It's letting us figure that out ourselves. But the point is, again, that there's the letters of the letter of the law and there's the spirit of the law. And that's what's so important that a person checks their intentions. Why am I, why do I need this shaito? Why do I need, you know, to look like everybody else just because that's the fashionable thing? You know, we're not going to get into all of that right now, but I want to go on with, some more ideas about sneas that I think are really fascinating. And it's incredible how many areas of our life outside of dress that very much the underpinning of it is how developed am I in my sneut, in covering my ego? So just quickly, again, there's only two places in the Torah that the word sneut is mentioned. And it's not even in the five books of Moses, okay? The first place is in Micha, where we said that God says, what do I want from you, right? Justice, kindness, and to walk humbly, to walk modestly with me. And the second place is in Mishle, where it says that, that Chachma is with the snooing, that wisdom resides among those who are private, those who are modest those who are able to cover their ego. So just quickly, some of the definitions of sneut that we've uh, discussed up till now is that sneut is about developing our internality. And that is true for both men and women. You know, women traditionally are masters of the private domain. That's why a woman is called, don't call her my wife, call her my home right? The private domain, the buy it. Generally, that's where women were found. Today, not so much, but even still, right? That's where women feel they are, you know, they are running the show, so to speak. And men always traditionally have been out there in the external public role. And in some ways, it makes it harder for them to develop this internality. But men and women equally are meant to develop it. Sneas is about covering the ego. It's about not being obsessed with what others are thinking of me. Right? All that self-talk we talked about when you go places, when you're doing things, what do they think? What am I dressed like? How do I look? What will they say? It's about putting Hashem first. It's about what does Hashem think of me? How does Hashem like my shape though? You know, how does Hashem like my skirt? 
or whatever it is. I'm, I'm being very, you know, but how does Hashem like the way I'm talking? Sneas is about weeding out ulterior motives and asking myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it about my ego? Or is it about, well, this is what Hashem wants. And even if nobody else is doing it, I'm going to do it because that's the most important relationship. It's taking myself out of the limelight, right? We said not being the bride at every wedding or the corpse at every funeral. Realizing our place. Okay, from Rabbi Meisman, we learn Sneot is the inner directed aspect of striving. And that in Judaism, and this is true for both men and women, true achievement is always in private hidden from the public eye. When you do something and nobody knows about it, you know that you're doing it for the right reasons, right? You're not getting a raise. You're not getting complimented. Nobody knows, right? The highest level of giving tzedakah is anonymously. There's nothing in it for you. Okay. So we're going to move on now. That was just a little bit of a, 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 a summary for anybody who's new or anybody who just wanted to, and for myself, just to really understand what Sneas is. Okay, so we're going to go to the Gemara in Eruvin Kuf, where Rabbi Yochanan says, even if there was no Torah, you would learn certain things from animals. So if we didn't have the Torah, we could observe the animals and learn about the proper way to behave. There it says you would learn sneas from a cat. You would learn not to steal from an ant. You would learn not to commit adultery from a dove. And you'd learn being a mensch or derech eretz from a chicken. <laughs> Now, I'm not sure what chickens do, but I know doves only have one mate. That's the interesting thing about the dove. That's why the Jewish people are actually compared to a dove. One of the reasons, because of our relationship with Hashem, that as much as we try to, you know, turn away from the relationship, it's the one and only. We can't get divorced. It's the one and only relationship that's forever and ever. Ever since we said, Naseh Nishma. We'll do it. We'll take it, right? God is the chasen. We're the kala. The chuppah was on Mount Sinai. The Torah was the ring. And this is a marriage that's forever. So whatever. We learn, uh, we learn fidelity from a dove and being a mensch from a chicken. So the Maharal, a great rabbi, um, says that the midah, this shows us that these mido, these character traits, are built into creation. They're part of creation. We see it in the animals. The Gemara is telling us you can learn not to steal from an ant. Now, obviously, an ant isn't not stealing consciously. He's not saying, oh, it's not good to steal. I might get put in ant prison if I get caught. You know, he's not thinking of any of those things. This is built into his being 
right? We know that even the Hebrew names for the animals, when Adam named each animal, he could look into the animal's essence, exactly what that animal was. And the letters of the Hebrew alphabet express that, are an expression of that animal's, from the smallest creature of an ant, right, to an elephant, it expresses something of who they are. I just know one example, for example, the word kelev, right? What's a kelev? A kelev is a dog. What do people say about a kelev, a dog? He's man's best friend. Why is he man's best friend? Because he's loyal, right? And if you look at the word kelev, kelev means like a heart. Kelev, right? So there's just a little example how the name of the animals, when Adam was naming the animals, he looked right, he understood what their personality is, what distinguishes them. And this is what the Gemara is telling us, that Sneas is built into the creation. We could learn it from a calf. It's part of, it's in the world, regardless of, you know, whether we think that the reason there's Sneas is so that men won't gawk at women, right? That it's a social issue, that we have Sneas because we want to try and keep the sexes separate and properly behaving themselves. Okay, that's part of it, but it was here even before human beings were created. So in other words, it, it doesn't really, there's an inherent value to Sneas that has nothing to do with social issues. Even if I was on a desert island, all by myself, there's something I should do. This development of my internality would still be something that I would have to work on because it's inherently important for my development as a person. Okay. So back to our... Um, source in Mishle Yud Aleph, where we're told that there's an inherent value to Sneas, that Sneas resides, uh, wisdom resides among the Tzniyum, those who are Tzniyas, those who are modest, okay? Um, it's saying to us, if you want more wisdom, if you want to develop your wisdom, you have to be more Sanua. Now, how does that work? Why, what, what is that? So basically, a tsunua is taking in what is going on around him or her. A tsunua is able to be quiet, to stay quiet, and take in what's going on around. In the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, it asks the question, Ezehu hacham, who is the wise person? Who is the smart person? And we know the answer. The answer is the smart person is the one who learns from every person. Now, obviously, this goes together with the idea of tzniut, that wisdom somehow resides with people who are able to stay quiet, right? Who are able to learn from others. And the way that we do this is by being quiet. Now, interestingly, I just thought of this now, but, you know, we have a medrash that says that when a person is born or before a person is born, they're taught the entire Torah 
in their mother's womb. That there's a light over their head and an angel teaches them the entire Torah, each one of us. But when we're born and we come into this world, the angel taps us right here under the nose and we forget everything that we knew. And somebody once noted that if you take your index finger and you put it there, it fits perfectly. Because it's coming to tell us, shh. If you want to learn back all the Torah that you once knew, which is really the purpose of our existence, to regain our wisdom, to reacquire what we once knew. That's why when a person hears something true, they go, I knew that. I knew that. And you don't even know if you really heard it before, but it resonates with you in a deep way because you did know it. You knew it. You forgot it. But we're reacquiring it. And one of the ways that we do, right, another popular saying is God gave us two ears and one mouth so that we could listen twice as much as we speak. And we even have that the letters of the word listen in English are the same letters as the word silent. But, you know, interestingly, it's a taiva. It's a taiva, just like the taiva that we talked about, a desire that they wanted meat, responding, talking, thinking about what you want to say while the other person's talking is all about controlling one's ego, right? Controlling one's taiva. Yeah, but I think this, you know, but I stop talking while I'm interrupting. <laughs> I have to set you right. I have to show you things through my, through my eyes. I've got to, you know, let you know the truth. And there's so many urges. There's so many ways we have to ride for many of us who, especially our natural talkers, to be able to be still. Or, you know, in the coaching world, they call it sharing space. You know, just allowing the other person to talk. And this is how a person becomes wise. And so part of Sni'ut is about being able to listen, being able to let the other person be the center. Because if I'm thinking about myself at the center, I'm always planning my next line. I'm always figuring out my next move that's going to make an impression. But people who sit on the side and take in messages Instead of trying to give out an impression, oh, listen to what I have to say. I'm so smart. You know, let me tell you, <laughs> right? If you want to be a chacham, you have to take a back seat so you can take in things more deeply. So this is something that we can all work on. You know, um, some of us more than others. But, you know, it's amazing if we allow ourselves the discomfort of not having to talk, of just listening, even as we're not agreeing, even as, if, uh, even if, uh, you know, as it, even when we've never heard something so preposterous right, or so distorted, or so not my truth, 
But being able to really listen is an incredible gift you give others. And again, it's developing your internality, which leads to wisdom. It's developing the ability to hear what other people have to say. And this is where why wisdom resides with those who are able to take a back seat, quiet down their ego, allow other people the limelight and the forefront and give them that space. Okay. Now, women have a hard time, says Dina Schoonmaker, letting other people express themselves <laughs> for many different reasons. She says, we're very passionate about what we believe, <clears throat> and we're very passionate about our opinion. We also like to rush in and fix things for other people, especially our children, right? sort of poo-poo whatever it is that they're upset about. You know, mom, I'm so ugly. I'm so fat. Nobody likes me. Oh, come on, honey. You're beautiful. What are you talking about? Everybody loves you. You know, we just use a lot of words, right? What does it say that, you know, 10 parts of speech came into the world and women took nine of them, right? Now, of course, we use our words and we have our, this ability to communicate, which is definitely a female trait, you know, necessary for our jobs and our roles. Um, and we do a lot of good with our uh, this ability. But because of it, there are certain yellow lights, red lights, where we have to work harder to keep quiet. Because again, women have a hard time letting other people express themselves. So Rabbeinu Yonah talks about this Pasuk in Mishle, that, that wisdom resides with those who are have Sni'ut, right? He says, Sni'ut brings Hachma. Why? It brings wisdom to those who have it, because this is the Mita of smart people. And this is what he says, why are they smart? Because the Tsanua person hears and listens, and he doesn't crave the exposure of his own heart. He doesn't desire, again, there's that word desire, because when you think about it, the need to talk, the need to say, well, this is what I think, the compulsion to be already forming your words and not really listening to the other person because you're so busy thinking about what you're going to answer and what you're going to say is really a taiva. It's a feeling of being out of control. I just have to say this. You just have to hear what I have to say. This is such a good idea. That happened to me too. I have to tell you how it happened to me too, right? I know what you're going through because I went through a wait. I have to tell you my story, right? And, and when we stop and we say, uh-uh, I'm not going to say anything, and it's uncomfortable. And I don't even like what they're saying. And I don't agree with what they're saying. And I want to tell them they're wrong. What do you mean, honey? Everybody loves you. What do you mean? That's not the way it is. Right? When we stop and we realize such discomfort that we're in. And it's interesting because I have to tell you personally, the coaching course that I took, I would say that was the most, um, the biggest challenge to my self-esteem. The biggest 
test. And I think everybody was experiencing it, which at least, you know, we had that communal experience of feeling very um, like our self-esteem had been cut to the ground. And it was all because of the inability to self-regulate. Now, what is self-regulation in this context? The ability to stay quiet, to stay quiet, to give the other person the stage to listen, really listen, not just pretend to listen, not just listen and be doing five other things like women do, right? Well, yeah, 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 you know. Yeah, I sort of hear you. Yeah. You know, my husband once cut out, cut out our, our cartoon disclaimer here. He once cut out a cartoon that we still laugh about that it says, um, honey, could you, uh, the wife is saying to the husband, honey, could you repeat everything you've said since we got married? <laughs> anyway, you know, it's like, we're kind of listening. We're kind of listening. You love that one, right, Kim? We're kind of listening, but we're not really there, okay? We're not really, we do it with our kids, right? Uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Listen, part of it is, you know, survival t- survival technique, but we get used to it, and we're just barking orders all the time, get dressed, go here, go there, blah, 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 blah. You know, we just get in that mode, of I am, I'm in the center, and therefore it makes it very hard for us to stay quiet. And again, it's interesting because coaching is all about staying quiet, but coaching is really all about listening and listening is not so easy. Most people are not good listeners. It's a skill and it's painful when you first start to just stay quiet and not have to rush in and fix something, not have to give advice, not have to tell the person, oh, 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 no, that's your problem. That's your problem. That's where you're going wrong, right? But to just let the person tell you their reality, how they see things. So Sniat is about communication. This is what Rabbeinu Yon is telling us. Smart people don't desire again that word's important crave you know like you crave chocolate ice cream you crave to open up your mouth and talk before the other person's allowed to share you're thinking about it while you're listening I already have the answer okay I'm waiting for you to finish so I can tell you what I think come on come on finish already finish finish so I can tell you what I think That's how we listen. That's how we listen or don't listen. So Sniat is about how you communicate. That you listen well to others, says Rabbeinu Yonah, and you don't expose the desires of your heart. Now, I don't think most people would think about Sniat in terms of being a good listener. And that's why, you know, I wanted to teach this subject because I wanted to show you that Sni'ut is this huge umbrella that, again, is not just about dress or the, you know, the nitty gritty of, you know, how you're supposed to look, but it encompasses so much more. The way you communicate, 
being able to give space to others because you've covered your ego, which is really here what, what, what's being, you know. Um, <clears throat> so this Mita goes in many different directions. So Rabbeinu Jonas says, it's somebody who's craving the exposure of his own heart, right? We're not even talking about exposing your body. Again, that's just an expression. And there are many reasons, like we said, women are externalized, so they need a little bit of extra covering to guard their internality, right? To not see themselves as the dumb blonde with the beautiful figure for their whole life and never get deeper, right? <clears throat> but, but what Rabina Yon is saying, it's not about the exposure of your body, it's exposure of your heart. That a tsenua does not desire this kind of exposure. So Rabbeinu Yonah is saying that when you're in a conversation and the person talking is talking and you're planning your next line, that's a taiva. That's an out-of-control desire. It's not being regulated. In Daniel Goleman's language, right, who wrote the EQ, book on EQ, self-regulation being able to control oneself, one's moods, being able to make oneself quiet. These are all, uh, these, the Ezehu Gibor, who is the strong man, the one who was able to control his impulses. These take a lot of work. And it's all part of Sni'ut, okay? So actually, we're going to go to this Mishnah. This Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, it's a very famous one. Ezehu Hacham, who is the wise person? We just said the person who learns from every other person. Ezehu Ashir, who is the happy person? Right, what's the answer? Marlene knows it. The person who is Sameach Bechelko, the one who is happy with what he has. Ezehu Gibor, who is the strong person? The strong person is the one who can control his yetzer, his impulses, his desire to rush in and answer back and tell the other person what they're thinking, right, in this situation. And Ezehu Mechubai, who is the honored person? The one who honors others. Now, the Maharal says something so amazing on these, on these words. Again, the Maharal. The Maharal says that in secular society, the answer to these questions would be so much different, right? Who is the smart person? Well, what do you mean, who's the smart person? He's the guy with the highest IQ, right? He's the smart person, the one who's the doctor and the head of the department. And, you know, he's a mathematician and he's a chess champion. And he's, that's the smart person, right? In other words, you were either born that way with a great genius of mind and could accomplish these kind of things, or you didn't. It's all um, external, objective. Who's the rich person? Well, how much does he have in his bank account? That's how we know who's rich, right? What's he worth? That's the rich person in the secular world. Who is the Gibor? Well, what's his BMI, right? Who's strong? Who's healthy? What's his BMI? That's how we'll know. And Ezehu Mechubad, who's the one who's honored? Well, 
you know, get yourself on a committee and make sure you become the president and get some status like Korach wanted and you'll be honored. But what the Maharal is telling us is he says, you know, in Torah eyes, through the lens of Torah, these are all subjective, not, they're all up to you to create. Every, any person can become wise. How? By listening to other people, by really hearing them, by seeing things from a different perspective, by not filtering it through, well, I don't know if I agree with that, and I don't think that's the right way, and I'm going to have to let them know right now. Okay? Who is the uh, strong person? The one who's able to control his desire to want to answer back. The one who's able to restrain himself. Anybody can be this person. You don't have to have muscles. You can be in a wheelchair, God forbid. But working on your internal self, which only you are in control of, and every person equally, regardless of their external manifestations, that's the real work, right? Again, you know, we can... Do tikkun olam out there in the world, you know, and go off and join the Peace Corps and, you know, save the whales and do all these things. But the real work that's going to save the world is the internal work that each one of us does right here in our lockdown, you know, whatever. Okay, soon we're going to be able to go shopping, get ready. Um, but, you know, that's the real tikkun olam. Because you are a microcosm of the entire world. Every person is a world, right? If you save one life, you save the entire world. If you destroy one life, you destroy the entire world. You are the world. I read a beautiful quote in this book that I would love to teach. I'd love to maybe get a group together and just go through this. But in the very first chapter... He says, a Hasidic saying, the day that you were born is the day that God decided that the world can't go on without you. Isn't that beautiful? The day that you were born is the day that God decided that the world can't go on without you. Now, if we looked at ourselves and every human being that way, wow. Wow. And we treated other people that way because that's the way God sees us. Okay, uh, a little bit more on this topic. So the Torah is teaching us, it's in your hands, whether you're going to be rich, whether you're going to be happy, sorry, whether you're going to be rich and happy, whether you're going to be smart by listening to others, you're going to have the wisdom of, the, of the, those who are tsanua, who are able to listen. To others. Um, and so people who learn from others are smarter. Why? Because you're listening and learning from all kinds of people. You don't have to tell you, you, there, you, you don't have to tell them your opinion. You're happy to listen uh, to their opinion and become smarter. Okay. We already know our own opinion. We know that, but we don't know what other people think. There's a great example that Dina gives. She says, you know, 
you know, a person who likes to share things. So let's say you learned how to make a one pot meal in a, in a, in a crock pot. And, you know, you learned how to make this thing and you're really excited about it because, you know, you're still raising kids and you got dinner made before breakfast and you're so efficient. And so everywhere you go, you tell people about this one pot meal idea, right? You share your recipe all over the place, you know, and, and you, you, you know, when you're, when you're at a wedding and you're sitting next to somebody you say, oh, I have to tell you about this one pot meal that I make. And, you know, when you're, um, waiting in the doctor's office and you start talking to somebody and everywhere you go, you share this recipe. And she said that the hacham, right, is somebody who will go all these places and say to the, the other person, so tell me, what do you make when you're pressured for time? What recipe do you make when you don't have time to make a proper dinner? So, here we see an example that the Tsanua, somebody who's asking other people, she'll come home from all these places she went with five new recipes. Whereas the one who likes to talk still has only one recipe, right? Now that they're shared with everybody everywhere they went. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with being a talker and there's nothing wrong with wanting to share. And it's a beautiful thing. You want to tell people tips. You want to give people advice. You want to tell them where to go shopping, what's on sale, etc. There's nothing wrong with that, using your speech to help, you know, raise other people's quality of life. But the point that she's making is a tsanua, somebody who wants to learn from others, will come home with five recipes because each person they ask them, right? So what do you do when you're pressed for time? What do you make, right? As opposed to let me tell you what I make. So you've still got your only one recipe, right? And you haven't expanded yourself. You haven't opened up your world to a world with four more, five more recipes. And that's just a mashal in general. Okay, one more concept, because I love this idea too. Another example. So um, Dina says it's interesting that there's two types of guests. You know, if you invite people to your Shabbos table, you'll see there's two types of guests. And she likens them to a, um, a halakhic understanding of kashrut. There's two ways that a pot gives off flavor, okay? And in Hebrew, it's called a kolate and a polate. So a collate is a pot that absorbs the flavor of the food that was cooked in it, right? So the walls of the pot are absorbing the flavor of the food. And a polate is a pot that gives off the flavor into the food, okay? The pot itself already had some kind of flavor, right? You cook milchiks in it. And so if you put meat into it, it won't be kosher because that milk pot is giving off a certain flavor. Right? Okay, whatever. We're not getting into the specifics of kashrut here. But she says that you can look at guests at a Shabbos table in the same way. So somebody who um, is giving off the flavor of the food is like the, um, sorry, is like the collate. He's absorbing the flavor of the food that's cooked in it. So he, she says, that's the type of guest who comes and says, I'm going to talk to the host all about me. 
I'm going to tell them about me and my year here in Israel and the seminary I'm going to and where I come from and who I am. And I'm going to spend the whole Shabbos meal, you know, letting everybody know who I am. And she says, listen, those people are fine. I mean, they often they're very uh, liked and the kids love them and they're, uh, they're, they're more, um, what's the word, uh, less shy right? They're more at home with themselves, but that's a certain type of guest. And then she said, and then you have another type of guest who's an observer, who's like the polate, um, who's just seeing this as an opportunity to learn, you know? So in Israel, especially when people are in seminary, they'll go to different people's homes to see how religious families learn are. Like, for example, especially if you're not religious, like I wasn't, you know, you go to all these different families and you'd be very curious about how the husband and wife interact, how they do their parenting, you know, with 14 kids in a three bedroom apartment, how they manage, you know, and, and it's, it's really eye opening if you go there to learn and to see how do these people who live these very religious lives, you know, how do they behave? And so you're watching their shalom bias, their, their way they interact with each other, their chinuch of their children, how they speak to children who are misbehaving, you know, and they're just taking in all of this learning. So she said, basically, you know, again, just back to our vad idea, part of this is homer. Some of us are born more talkative and some of us are born quieter, right? And so we can't change our home there, right? If you have give, been given the gift of gab, you're not meant to just stifle yourself, Edith, you know? Like it's, you know, but of course, our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness. So if we're given the strength of being very talkative or we've learned to always rush in with what I think and what you need to know and, you know, making myself the limelight or thinking about what I want to say when the other person is talking. Our homework this week is to be more aware, okay? To allow other people to finish their thought and their sentence. Even that, even if we're busy thinking about what we're going to say, even that is a level. Quieting our own minds, Realizing there are things we can learn from other people, even the ones in our close proximity that we think we already know, like the back of our hand. We've already heard that a hundred times, but maybe we haven't really listened. Maybe we haven't listened more deeply. Okay? So make way to learn from other people. This is a path to greater intelligence, even if you don't agree with them. It widens you to hear how he or she is thinking. It makes you a smarter person because it's not just your experience anymore. And it's not just what you see and what you experience and understand. But if you're able to just stay quiet, you get to see a whole other vantage point of a whole other person, a whole other world, right? that whose shoes you've never ste stepped into, but you can allow yourself to go there. And that makes you smarter. That makes you wiser. 
And that is part of the process of becoming more tsanua, more of an internal person, covering one's ego, moving out of the way, right? And allowing more room for others. And obviously we said last week, allowing room for Hashem. And we're going to talk more about that next week, uh, about, you know, who our number one audience really is and really making that a little bit more real. Okay, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. And it's always a pleasure. I'm having withdrawal symptoms a little bit, teaching only once a week. I, I don't know, I, I was... Hope you enjoyed this class. To sponsor a future class, or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me, as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, please email me at DeborahVale at Yahoo.ca. That's Deborah, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Vale, V-A-L-E, at Yahoo.ca. 